Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. If you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 as we continue our study through Luke's gospel. And let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you today in thanksgiving, um, especially for for our mothers. Thank you for for the mothers that are here, that are watching online. Um, Thank you that, that what they do as mothers is so similar in so many ways to the work of Jesus, who gave himself for others. Um, And so, Father, as we see the reflection of Christ there, we just pray that we would uh, honor that well as a church, that we would honor mothers, that we would honor motherhood, and we're just so thankful uh, for the way that you've built things so that that people can have uh, that opportunity in their life to be a reflection of Christ in such a profound way. Um, Today, as we open your word, we just pray that we would learn from the greatest one. We would learn from the one who serves. We pray that you would, uh, through what we see in your word today, be made into a people who are devoted to to humble service for others. As we look at the world around us that honors the the rich and the powerful and the successful, uh, help us to look to Jesus today who honors those who serve and who is the greatest of all servants. Make us a church of servant-hearted people as we look to, to the ultimate servant in Christ today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up in Luke 22. Um, They are in the upper room. They're around the table on Wednesday evening in Holy Week. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. According to John's Gospel, Jesus has dressed himself like a slave, and he's washed the feet of the other disciples um, as he's dressed in that slave's garb. Uh, Judas has gone off into the night to sell Jesus out. So it's just the true disciples and their Lord in this upper room in the final hours before Jesus goes to the cross. Um, They've spent over three years now with Jesus. They've been learning from him every day, participating with Jesus in the inbreaking of his kingdom as miracles have been done and truth has been taught. They've almost completed their their years of training with Jesus, and they've seen firsthand his humility, his care. They've eaten the bread that symbolizes his body that was, was soon to be torn for them. And here at the pinnacle, at the most perfect of all spiritual moments, this happens, Luke 22, verse 24 A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So there's this dispute, and it's a word that means a a fight for glory or victory. So they're at that table in this key moment, and they're flexing. They're flexing their muscles over the table where they just ate the Last Supper. They still have crumbs in their beards from eating the bread that symbolized the body of Jesus that would be torn for them. Their feet are still damp from having been washed by the Lord, and still they're posturing and striving to get to the top. And they've had this argument before. This isn't the first time. In Matthew's gospel, they asked Jesus who the greatest in the kingdom of God was, and Jesus brought in a child and sat him in their midst and said, the greatest needs to be like this child. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus was walking along the road to Capernaum, and his disciples were having an argument behind him on the road. And so when they arrived, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? And they had to admit, we're arguing about who the greatest in the kingdom is, who the greatest in the kingdom is. And so Jesus, at that point, settled it, we thought. In, In Mark 9, verse 35, it says, he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. So this is not the first time that they've been fighting over who the greatest is. They'd already addressed this issue, but still in these moments around the Last Supper, it has become an issue again. And it just seems so out of place here in this context. In fact, it's so out of place that that some commentators, when they're talking about Luke's gospel, they say that Luke must have moved this. 
that this happened at some other time, and then Luke just kind of remembered it when he was writing this part of the account, and so he threw this in in the middle of this account as he's describing the Last Supper. It couldn't have happened here. He must have moved it from when it actually happened, like in Matthew's narrative. But the thing is, this was clearly a different incident, because that other incident happened with a child in their midst in Matthew. The, the one in Mark happened in Capernaum. The Last Supper's in Jerusalem. So this is a very different thing, and it is happening again. And so we read this and we wonder about the disconnect. How can these guys be so dense as to sit with the Lord at the Last Supper, experience all of that, and then immediately start flexing and striving for glory? And these guys have been in church for three years. They've been through the best possible discipleship program that there is. They were being discipled by Jesus himself. It was better than any seminary. Jesus was their pastor. So you can't even point to the faults in the leadership and say, well, obviously that's why these guys are still this way. Like, at least with you guys, you have an excuse. Like, you, you can say, well, yeah, Kevin's one of the pastors. How high are we going to rise? These guys, they had Jesus. Like, he, he was leading them. He was discipling them. And still, at the end of the program, they don't get it. So Why? I mean, it could be because these disciples are just like us. And their spiritual growth and their maturing is a slow process. And sometimes we have an opposite expectation. Our expectation is that we're going to grow really quickly. And sometimes we hear testimonies that make us think that that's the norm, where someone will say, I came to faith in Jesus, and the second I did, my temptation went away. There was nothing but like spiritual vitality and strength. There was instant, immediate change in all kinds of ways. And it's not that those stories are lies. They're, they're often very true. Sometimes God does bring really quick change into people's lives. But sometimes those stories are exaggerated. And sometimes those stories are premature where people start off and things aren't really going that well, but they haven't done the long haul yet. And so, so we look at those first five minutes of their walk with Jesus and we compare the 20 years that we've been walking with them and we say, man, it's so slow for me. Look how great it's going for you. But it just hasn't been, been tested yet for them. Growth in, in Christ is not always an instant thing. And even these people who are walking with Jesus for three years, participating in, in miracles and preaching truth and casting out demons and doing all these things that Jesus empowered them to do, even these guys, three years in, it still appears they haven't grown that much. And so be encouraged. If you can look at your life and say, man, when I zoom in on my life, it, it doesn't necessarily even look like I'm growing. Maybe I can, can back up and I can zoom out and maybe look over a five-year period and see some progress, but day-to-day, -day, it just seems like it's not what I hear from these other people. Be encouraged, because the original disciples experienced that too. Spiritual growth can be slow. Also, these disciples at this point, they still didn't understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And so Jesus corrects that right here. Verse 25, it says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So in fairness, they had never seen any other kind of kingdom before. All the kingdoms of the world had strong kings that, that ruled with might and power and fear. Those kings flexed their muscles. Those kings called themselves benefactors. That word benefactor was actually a common descriptor of the Greek rulers. It was used to describe Augustus Caesar. And it described people who had power and money and would publicly honor themselves and publicly expected honor in the places that they went because they were so generous with the people that they were, were providing for. 
And these disciples had never heard of any other kind of king. So when they hear that Jesus is their king, they assume that that's what he'll be, that that's where they're headed really soon. And so they start behaving like these guys who are striving for glory, who are striving to get to the top. They want public glory themselves. They want public celebration of them in any any of the places that they go. They think that that's coming right now. That's what they're in Jerusalem to get. They still thought that even in Jesus's kingdom, you fight to get to the top and achieve your glory there. They still thought there was a golden crown coming for Jesus in Jerusalem, and they wanted to be at his his right hand. They wanted to be at the very top of his kingdom when it came. Now, Jesus is the true king. He is the truest king, and his kingdom is a true one, but it's an upside-down kingdom where, where the way to the top is not the same as the way to the top in all the kingdoms of the world. The greatest in the world's kingdoms are celebrated and powerful, but in this kingdom, in the kingdom of Jesus, the greatest is like a child and the leaders serve. And in the kingdom of Jesus, the crown is made out of thorns. Jesus says that, that the leaders in the world exercise lordship. They strive for glory. And he looks at his disciples and he says, not so with you. Literally, he says it stronger. He says, you are not like that. So Jesus isn't just giving them here behaviors to avoid. He's not just saying, don't be like one of those kings, but he's giving them a totally different way of life that they're supposed to embrace as followers of Christ. He's giving them a totally different kind of identity as citizens in a totally different kind of kingdom. He says that that is not who you are. You are not like that. And then to remind them what his kingdom is like, he reminds them of what the king is like. Verse 27, he says, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So he says, when you go to a banquet, who outranks who? The person who's sitting at the table or the person who's being served? He says, obviously, the person sitting at the table outranks the others. He goes, but here I am. I'm your king in your midst, and I am the one who served you. In John 13, in this same context, in John 13, verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So if this is what the king is like, the king goes to the lowest places, what should they expect the places at his right hand would be like? So at this point, they still don't get it, and it's because they're slow to grow, it's because they don't understand what the kingdom of God is like, and then also one of the reasons that they don't get it is because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. This is where we actually have some advantage over these guys in the upper room, that we know where this story goes. We know that Jesus isn't going to go and get a golden crown. We know that Jesus is going to get a crown of thorns. We know that he's going to be on a criminal's cross outside the city. We know he's going to die and he's going to the grave. He's going to suffer all the way to the end. He's going to give his life and then he's going to rise again. These guys don't know that yet. I mean, Jesus has told them. He's told them he's going to die. He's told them he's going to rise, but they just can't conceive. How could you be the conquering king who also dies? That wouldn't make any sense to them because that's not what conquering kings do. So they're totally ignorant of the cross that's about to come. 
Because they didn't understand the cross, they lived exactly like everybody else. And so the question for us is, what's our excuse? And how often do we, on this side of the cross, have lives that show that we also have a profound lack of understanding of the cross of Jesus? We read this story and we're so shocked at the disconnect between the way the disciples are living and what's happening at this Last Supper, but they didn't even know as much as we do. They didn't know about the cross of Jesus. So as much as we're shocked at that disconnect, we should be even more surprised at the disconnect that we see in our lives. The times where we see Jesus give his life for his enemies, but still our greatest concern is ourselves. It's our comforts and our preferences and our rights. Jesus goes to the lowest place in humility, but still we posture on social media and flex our muscles. Jesus leads with with truth and boldness and self-sacrifice and giving himself for others, but still we have Christian leaders who try to lead by flexing and by mocking and by posturing and posing and striving for glory. And these disciples, they were living that way because they hadn't seen the cross yet. But when we live that way, it's because we're very quick to forget the cross. We're very quick to minimize the gospel. And so our greatest need is what their need was, to to look to the cross, to learn from the cross, and to be so shaped by the cross that we can look at how the world around us lives and think about what the world around us values and then look at the cross and recognize that it says to us, you are not like that. You're not that way. So look more closely at these verses to see what we're like in light of, the king, of who the king is and what the cross says. Luke 22, verse 26, again, Jesus says, but not so with you, Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. So people of the cross are marked by humility. Christians are supposed to be people who see greatness much differently than the people around us do. Because for us, the greatest one went to the cross. So Jesus says that the greatest among us should be like the youngest. And in their culture, the oldest were the ones that you deferred to, the oldest were the ones you obeyed, the oldest were the ones you listened to, and then the younger were the ones who served and who deferred to them. And you would see this even among siblings, where older siblings would be able to tell the younger siblings what to do, the younger siblings would defer to the older siblings. You you deferred to those who were older. And Jesus says that in his kingdom, the greatest are the ones who become like the youngest. Youngest are the ones who serve others, who defer to others. Youngest are the ones who are asking, what can I do for you, not what can you do for me? And so it's really out of place when we have higher positions of leadership within Christianity that also come with higher degrees of pride. Because in a Christian leader, arrogance should be a major red flag. I mean, first and foremost, it should be a red flag because it's revealing that we don't believe the gospel, or at least that we've taken our eyes off of the cross and taken our eyes off the gospel. We know that there are certain Christian leaders we should avoid. We know that we don't want to follow like an adulterous leader. We know that we don't want to follow a thieving leader. But often we're drawn to arrogant leaders. And it shouldn't be that way among us. 
Because the cross drives out arrogance. At the cross, the greatest one among us went to the lowest place. At the cross, our true nature is revealed, that we're so sinful that the Son of God had to be torn for us. And so when we have our eyes on the cross, it's impossible for us to be living in persistent pride. Pride is an indicator that we've taken our eyes off of the cross, and it's a major red flag in a leader. So it says something about our gospel belief, but also it's just so destructive to anyone who tries to lead anything, whether we're leading our children as moms and dads, if we're leading a grace group or a ministry, whatever we're leading, it will be ruined by pride. For a number of reasons, Proverbs 21 verse 4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. So here he calls pride the lamp of the wicked. And the way that a lamp works is that when you use a lamp at night, it it affects the color of everything that you see. So if you have a lamp that's orange and you go out at night, everything will kind of have a little bit of an orange hue because of that lamp. And if you have a lamp of pride, it affects everything that you see. Everything becomes about you. Every decision gets made based on what will benefit you. And then other people with your lamp of pride that you're looking at them with, they become props in a play that's all about you. And you start to use people, run over people, ignore people, feel burdened by people. It's like they're interrupting this day that's supposed to be all about me. So pride becomes our lamp And it's destructive of leadership because we can't become wise when we're living in it. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. To grow wise, we listen to others. We listen to God. That's how we become wise. It's by listening. It's by hearing what other people have to teach us, by hearing what the word of God has to teach us. But if we already know everything, then we don't listen, we don't do that, and we never get wisdom. So pride wrecks everything by becoming our lamp and and changing the color of everything we see. It keeps us from learning wisdom and growing. And then eventually it always leads to a downfall. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride left unchecked will destroy us. Eventually, our lack of wisdom wrecks us. Our inability to make good decisions causes us to stumble and do foolish things. And it's just a natural consequence of worshiping ourselves, which is what pride is. It's self-worship. And when we do that, when we make all of our lives about ourselves, when we center our lives on ourselves, we're putting a weight on ourselves that we were never meant to bear, and that always breaks us. You see it, this is why so many like child celebrities usually have some kind of meltdown at some point where, where they start off and at eight years old, everybody is telling them that they're the most amazing people in the world. They're worshiped as gods at eight years old. And, and how does an eight-year-old ever process that? Everything's all about them. And so, so they start to believe that everything's all about them. And then they do things that will feed more attention getting. And, and so, so they go through their days focused on themselves, and, and eventually it crushes them because they're not meant to bear that kind of weight. So they'll always seek attention or they'll find ways to just numb themselves because they kind of know the truth, that they're not as awesome as everybody thinks they are. And so eventually that fall comes. 
When, when people buy into it, when they're worshiped by others, they get crushed by the weight. There's only one who's to be worshiped. There's only one who can bear the weight of worship, and it's Christ, and it's not us. And if we put that weight of worship anywhere else, even on ourselves, it will crush the thing that we worship. When our daughter Lydia was a toddler, we had this um, little like cheapo plastic uh, keyboard, and so and it had this stool that was like equally cheap and plastic, and, and so she would sit on that stool and play the keyboard, and so one day I went over with her, and I decided to sit on that stool and play the keyboard, and it wasn't even, there wasn't like a delay, it, it wasn't like the, the stool creaked for a second and gave me a warning, it exploded, like shards just shattered underneath me, because it was not meant to bear that weight. I was laying on my back, having just collapsed and fallen to the ground because I put way too much weight on that keyboard that was meant to hold a toddler and my, my daughter's standing over me going, are you okay? Because I, I shattered it. And when we take the, the weight of worship and we put it on anything other than Jesus, that, that thing's not made for that. We collapse it. We shatter it. So we have to guard against pride. It's always lead, leading to a fall. It's always spiritually dangerous for us. Ultimately, our pride is turning away from God to, to turn to self. And that's what all sin is. All sin is turning away from the cross to find our ultimate pleasure in other things. Covetousness, greed, is turning away from the cross to find satisfaction in owning things. Lust is turning away from the cross to find satisfaction in sex. Gossip is turning away from the cross to find satisfaction in belittling others. Laziness is turning away from the cross to find satisfaction in excessive rest. And pride is turning away from the cross to find satisfaction in yourself. And self was never meant to bear that load. So you are not like that. People who believe in the cross are marked by a pronounced humility. We aren't above others. We aren't the people who defend ourselves to the end. We aren't the proud mockers of others. We're marked by humility as people of the cross. Also, people of the cross serve others. Again, verse 26, he says, Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Now, often in church, what we'll do is we'll say, All right, so so look at this verse. You want to be great, you want to be a leader, then serve. And for us, service just means plugging into one of a number of programs around the church building. And those are certainly good ways to serve, and and certainly that is service. That's one of the, the many ways that we give ourselves to other people. But remember that Jesus isn't just giving us stuff to do here. He's giving us a whole different way of being. He's giving us a whole different life to embrace. He's telling us who we are. And people of the cross don't just plug into programs. We do that when we see needs. People of the cross are people who have lives that are marked by service for others. When we serve, we're surrendering self for the good of others. We're surrendering our rights. We're surrendering our comforts, our preferences. We're deferring to others. We have this posture for looking for ways to help and to give and to encourage and to build up. It's a life of service. It's who we are. This is who he's made us as part of his kingdom. It's not just that we plug into a program so we can check a box every week. And in fact, there's a danger. 
There's a danger that we can live lives that are not lives of service, but then because we do a, a church program every week, we check a box and we say, there, I did it, I served. But Jesus isn't just looking to fill a couple hours on our calendar. He's looking to make us a whole new people. We're part of a whole different kind of kingdom. And he doesn't want us to use just a a small religious activity to make us feel okay about ourselves when we're not living like people of the cross for the rest of the week. It's good to help with those church programs. Please don't drop out of working with kids. We we need your help. We we need you to serve. Really, it's great. But we need a life of service and and not just serving in, in a program. This is one of the reasons it's so good for us to recognize mothers and motherhood, because mothers have that unique opportunity to serve in ways that look like the way that Jesus served. Serve in lowly places, serve in unnoticed places. To give themselves and pour themselves out for others, Jesus says that's where real greatness is. So people of the cross are marked by humility, people of the cross have lives of service, and also they expect that there will be suffering before the reward. These disciples didn't know that yet. Remember, they didn't understand the cross. They didn't know where things were going. They thought glory was about to happen now. And Jesus says, yes, the glory is coming. It's just not coming yet. In fact, he goes on, verse 28, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus says to the disciples, you've been with me in trials, and you do have a real kingdom that's coming. And these apostles had something specific promised to them. They were promised that one day they would sit on 12 thrones and rule, but it just wasn't going to happen yet. In fact, almost all of them went out and they experienced tremendous trials, and eventually they experienced death before that glory. And while we aren't sitting on those same 12 thrones that the apostles do, that that same promise isn't exactly for us, we are promised that we will reign with him someday. That that glory is coming. But to get there, we follow on the path that Jesus was on. Author Paul Miller calls this the the J-curve. It's the path that Jesus followed, as we used to sing in the 80s, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, that, that he went to the lowest place before he ascended. He gave his life and and gave his life all the way to the bottom and then received the glory, then received the resurrection. And so often when when we come to Christianity, we we expect that there's going to be the glory now. That we'll get the glory as we lead now, we'll get the glory as we serve now, we'll get the glory in some kind of prosperity now. That if we come to Jesus, we don't expect to have to go to the cross and to the grave, we think that we're going straight to the sky. But the Christian path is a path of of following that J-curve, of going down to the lowest place, of suffering, of giving our lives, of, of experiencing loss, and then one day receiving glory from the Lord. These guys didn't get it because they thought the glory was right now. What's encouraging is that Peter learned this. You know, I'm sure he was one of these guys flexing his muscles and posturing at this table I'm sure he thinks that he's definitely one of the the runners-up to be the greatest in the kingdom of God for sure. Jesus rebukes him, and later on in Peter's life, he's learned his lesson. Because listen to what he writes. He writes this to elders, to Christian leaders in 1 Peter chapter 5, describing a little bit of what Christian leadership is like. And so he says this, I exhort the elders among you, 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he's talking to elders or, or pastors, and, and he talks about what they do. They shepherd. They don't domineer. They aren't in it for the glory. They aren't in it for the money. They're examples to the flock around them. He goes on to say that everybody should be clothed with humility. Everyone should resist temptation. And then he says that everybody's going to need to suffer waiting for the glory that's going to come in the future. It's an important corrective for Christian leaders because we so much want to connect Christian leadership to glory now. But Jesus connects it to suffering now and glory later. So when Peter talks about eldership, when he talks about the pastorate, when he talks about leadership, he almost can't do it without talking about suffering. Yeah, pastors are definitely people who have to be bold and they have to speak the truth and, and they have to whack wolves sometimes, but they're also people who have to suffer. They're also people who have to follow that J-curve because we shouldn't be striving for the glory now. And so the call for all of our lives is, is to look to the cross. To look to the cross and receive it so that it saves us. To recognize that Jesus went to that cross not because he, he just needed to kind of take the edge off the bad things we had done. He went to that cross to pay the price for all of our sin because we had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He had to be sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. He had to pay that price so that we could live. We look to that cross, and when we look to that and believe in him and what he's done, at that moment, we are saved. We are forgiven. But then we have to be so careful not to look away from it. Because when we see pride in our lives, it means we need to look to the cross again because the cross humbles us. We look to the cross for our salvation, but we also look to it for our humility. We look to it as the thing that changes our lives. And then we also look to it as the pattern that we're going to follow. We mirror the cross in our lives. Where we go to low places in service to others and reflect that cross to people around us. Not by striving for glory, but by suffering with joy, knowing that one day that glory will come. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you now and, and we need you to forgive us. We, we confess that so often we strive for the glory now. We confess that so much of our frustration with life comes from our unmet expectations. 
so much of what seems to be going wrong in our lives comes from, from us thinking like these disciples did before the cross. So we confess that, that we have turned our eyes from your cross and we've forgotten your cross. And that's manifested in all kinds of ways in our lives where we still strive for greatness. Where we're still marked by, by pride and striving for glory now. Where we have lives that are about serving ourselves and not serving others. So we confess that we've taken our eyes off of you and off of your cross. We ask for your forgiveness and your mercy. Jesus, we thank you that, that you went to that cross and you did so for the joy that was set before you. And though you're in glory now at the right hand of your Father, you didn't get there without suffering first, without going to the grave. And thank you that though we become proud and we fall short, because of what you accomplished on that cross, your humility is counted as ours. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would continue to work the gospel into our hearts. We are so slow to grow. We're so quick to look away from your cross. We're so quick to disbelieve. So remind us of the cross. Remind us of the cross so it shapes our definition of what greatness looks like. So that it makes us humble people. So that we become people whose lives are poured out in service to others. And so our expectations can be adjusted so that we don't expect reward before suffering. Remind us of these truths. Help us to believe them and let them shape us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.